Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Secret Lives of Leaders, the podcast show that brings you the very best information, insight, and intelligence from some of the greatest leaders, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, uh, journalists, authors, you name it, from the entrepreneurship community in the UK. And this week, we actually have a guest, second in a row, actually, from outside the UK, one from Australia, with the uh, very clear, distinctive name of Alethea, not Alicia, as I continually called her. So I do apologise to Alethea for the many times she had to correct me during the interview. Rich, what can we expect in today's episode? Uh, well, firstly, I, I just checked. It was actually our third guest in a row that's outside the UK. We had Reshma before. Oh, very good point. Yeah. Anyway, so we can expect uh, lots of fun uh, because Alethea is a very fun person. Uh, but she's also incredibly smart. So um, she goes into the history of her starting Skim Links, which was originally called Skimbit with her co-founder Joe. Uh, coming to the UK from Australia, uh, not really knowing what to do, but on the way kind of getting involved with the London tech scene, um, going on the original web mission uh, where you know a lot of other companies like um, Huddle kind of went on and a few others, people like Ollie Barrett. Um, we're on that one and that's kind of almost the formation of the London tech scene so she was really part of that and uh, you know we go through the whole highs and lows of skim links and right now they're a pretty big high that's true and um, I think a really nice insight from Alethea is the appreciation of enjoying your company and absolutely not seeking to exit so not being focused around exit it's not that they would turn down offers but it's more that she's very much in it to enjoy the ride and enjoy the journey rather than trying to focus on the outcome which i think is uh, definitely a lesson to be learned for a lot of people just starting up especially and what real motivation is to build successful companies from runway east studios in london welcome to the secret lives of leaders Today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Skim Links, Alethea, not Alicia, as she always reminds me, Navarro. Described by the Sunday Times as an Aussie geek, Alicia originally started her entrepreneurial journey down under, but with not much success. Having had two companies fail, she had one more roll of the dice. In 2006, with 60,000 Australian dollars, which is 33,000 pounds, but slowly climbing, she started, as it was then known, Skimbit, with a team of developers in Romania. The idea was simple, enable businesses to earn a commission on web links and content when they redirect customers to other retail sites. Ten years later, the company is now called Skimlinks and is the market leader in the space and lifting Alicia up to be one of the most well-regarded entrepreneurs in the London technology scene. She once said, people who start a business believing the hype will be disappointed. It's wonderful, but you'll probably never sleep or date normally again. So on that note, welcome Alicia. Uh, hello, delighted to be here. I mentioned in the introduction there a quote. There's a quote from The Times calling you an Aussie geek. When putting together some research for this podcast, a close friend of yours actually referred to you as a popular dork. Have you always been a bit of a nerd? Absolutely. I mean, completely. I got. I was the kind of person that taught myself how to touch type by borrowing a book from the library and learning on a typewriter, which gives you an indication of... Uh, how long I've been doing it. And uh, I taught myself how to code when I was 10, again, from books in my first Commodore 64. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, I used to go to math enrichment programs for fun after school. Yes, I was a geek. What does math enrichment program mean? Apparently, I was not actually very good at it, but I did find it fun. Uh, you go and you do hard maths problems for fun. Um, okay, I'm going to jump straight into it and ask you a very simple question. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? I do, yes. I think I uh, I kind of have for a long time. Oh, I, I think when I was young, before I knew what the word meant, I called it a, a businesswoman. I always wanted to be a businesswoman. Uh, and then when I was old enough to understand what the word was, yes, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, okay, so you see yourself as an entrepreneur. How else do you see yourself? Um... Oh, good question. I, um, I I think I see myself as a very tenacious and passionate lover of uh, pleasurable things. 
uh, as in food. I love music. I love travel. I'm hedonistic in that sense. Uh, And so I I think that all my life it's been the pursuit of um, doing things that give you that sense of you're either building something or relishing something. Is it a difficult question for you to be asked how you see yourself? Are you introspective and do you think about this kind of thing? Or if it's sprung upon you, do you feel uncomfortable trying to work out what it is? I could talk about it for hours, but I don't think that would be very interesting for anyone else. We actually asked your oldest friend, Jen, how she saw you and what she thought about you. So she's actually said Alicia's defining characteristic is her self-confidence. And at school, she was best known, as we mentioned, as a popular dork. She also says you're fiercely competitive. And she would like to know if you finally forgiven her for beating you in the finals in, in your exams. By 0.5%. I can't believe it. So the answer is no. No. You're not sitting here shaking your head. <laughs> we so. were very, I mean, it was the defining, uh, it, it was a kind of hilarious feature of our friendship, but we, we battled it out between who would get first in each class. And sometimes I beat her, sometimes she beat me. But in the final, final like exam at the end of high school, yes, she she came top of the school. She's the smartest person I know. I came after that. So she's also asked me to uh, to ask you about uh, what it means to be if and but. Uh, yeah, uh, it was um, uh, my one of the most inspiring and meaningful relationships I've had in my life is being with my maths teacher in high school. She was one of the people that kind of transformed how I saw myself. Uh, and she um, she was just very entertaining and very inspiring. And Jen and I would sit at the front of the class, being the dorks that we were, and uh, and she would stand up there and teach. And Jennifer, who was the very, um, very intellectual, gifted one, would question every theory that um, my math teacher put up on the wall with, you know, well, if you do this, you could do it this way and this way and this way. Um, and so she was always coming up with like an extrapolation of a theory, whereas I was very argumentative. And so I would say, but that doesn't make sense because of this, but that doesn't make sense because of this. And so, yeah, we got the nicknames if and but. She was if, I was but. Mm. Have you always been quite happy to be thought of as but? Do you feel like that's still, <laughs> still with you today? I think that's a fair description. Okay. I do like to uh, to question things, yeah. Are you fairly contrary? Uh, sometimes for the fun of it. Sometimes because I really like to understand things. Sometimes because it's quite fun to see what happens if you question things that are sometimes taken as given. We haven't actually done this, so there is not a trick question, don't worry. But if we were to ask Joe, your co-founder, if he found you uh, contrary or difficult, do you think that he would say yes or no? <laughs> he would probably answer exactly as I've just said, that uh, yes, that I like to understand things and that I am uh, not afraid to um to question things yeah so if but is the kind of person that you are comfortable <laughs> being and you understand about yourself and you've also mentioned being hedonistic and essentially a, a go-getter and also been described as a popular and confident dork um does that all fit with how you want to be seen or what is the kind of person that you wish other people saw you as is there any sort of desire of i wish people looked at me this way but um no i i think that i i I guess another very defining characteristic is that uh, perhaps related to the confidence is that i'm not scared to be who i am and i think that's come a lot from my parents who always um who always taught me not to have any shame in being who i was and so i don't i don't care if i look ridiculous which i often do i i i think i can be quite a ridiculous character but i take quite a bit of pride in the fact that i'm not scared to be publicly ridiculous and were your parents both business ladies no no they were they were uh working class and uh worked really you know they were both migrants uh they were migrants to australia from... they from spain and cuba they knew no one when they came to australia they didn't know the language they didn't have jobs they knew no one and they built like a life for themselves quite interesting i guess my uh my my father was uh an electrician um who uh, who could he he was studying to be uh, a lot more in Cuba, but um, was uh, affected by the communist regime, and so because he refused, due to his incredible principles, to um, pretend to be a, um, allegiant to the communist party, was denied his scholarship places and denied his university place, and so he could only be an electrician. Um, and uh but didn't you know did well out of that went to spain met my mother they came to australia um and they uh mom was a stay-at-home mom my dad was working until my dad had a 
bad accident and broke his back. And so he was in a body cast from his neck to his knees for three months. And my father was like the ultimate, like Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, Marlboro Man type. So this was a really destabilizing um, and, and impactful accident. Uh, he was likely never to walk again. Um, they managed to put plates in his back and he could walk, but um, he couldn't work. Um, so my mother uh, had to go and be and work because we had no other money. So she she worked at a dry cleaner pressing. Uh, and my father went from being like a very masculine man to taking care of two, to raising two daughters at home. So he was cooking, cleaning, you know, doing all the household chores while his wife went to work at a at a dry cleaner. And on the basis of that salary, they sent both me and my sister to a private school. That was the only luxury we ever had. Um, we didn't even, you know, my mother made my clothes or we got hand-me-downs. You know that you don't look as good as everyone else, so you just have to kind of find an inner strength in that. Uh, but that, I guess that's what, you know, yeah, it, it inspired us to study hard. My parents kind of emphasized the importance of good education, so I studied really hard and, and managed to get myself a scholarship for high school and a scholarship for university. So, you know, to answer your question, were they enterprising? Not in a business sense, but certainly in a life sense. If it wasn't for their hard work and the principles that they taught me, my sister, um, yeah, I don't think I'd be where I am today. So does your sister live in London? She does, yes. And what does your sister do? And are you close? We are very close. She is also really interesting, uh, not in a sort of a traditional entrepreneurial sense, but she's also very enterprising. Uh, she's worked, she's the opposite to me in, in that she's very process and operational and, you know, structured and disciplined, whereas I'm more um, imaginative and unstructured and so on. Uh, and so she's always worked in operations roles for either sort of big government or big infrastructure projects. And she moved to London and worked for some startups here in London in a kind of operational, senior operational role, and then decided in her sort of mid-30s that she was also going to chase her dreams and quit her job, uh, her well-paying job, and went to chef school, the Cordon Bleu School. And um, a year later, she's working at a two Michelin-starred restaurant as a chef on minimum wage. Yes. Um, so two very successful ladies from an enterprising family. Do you feel successful? Is that a fair way to think of yourself? I think that it's uh, it can be sometimes difficult to, to see that when all your friends around you are equally um, achieving a lot of uh, incredible things. And so it, sometimes when you're around that circle, the delta is not so great, so you don't see it as successful. But I think it's really um, important to take a step back and go, compared to what uh, I, I dreamed of wanting when I was young, look how much of those dreams I've ticked off and how much of um, the life I dreamed of I actually am living now. So, yes, I, I, I'm, I, I feel successful. Correct answer. Um, do, you, uh, do you actually look up to anyone specifically or is there anyone who you know, particularly inspires you as a successful person? Um. Oh, good question. Um, oh, I was thinking initially when I read your question that uh, it was around like who who was like my mentor or um, did you have a mentor? Well, I I was thinking about this and um, I, I think the the first person that made the biggest impact to me was this math teacher Katrina, who um, who I just admired. She was this ballsy, cheeky, funny, naughty. Uh, teacher in this like very prim and proper sort of Catholic convent school. And she would sometimes, you know, instead of teaching us maths, would make us watch Pink Floyd's The Wall video because she said we'd learn more from that than learning about calculus today. And, you know, she was just very irregular and inspiring. And she saw something in Jen and me, you know, we were the dorks that thought that we, you know, were not destined to do anything. And she just used to tell us, you have no idea, like so much is going to happen in your life, much more than anything I've ever achieved. And um, and she was the first person that made me believe that I, I, I could be destined for something special. Um, and, and yeah, I have a lot to thank her for. Skimlinks is 10 years old now. When you started it, did you think that 10 years later you'd be running the same company? Because I think that we see this a lot nowadays, that there's uh, entrepreneurship has become quite popular and people see, you know, it, it, companies like Instagram or, you know, others like rising to success in a few years. And that's actually a very big misconception and it takes a lot of hard work and, you know, very few companies, you know, are, are successful overnight. Um, 
how how has the journey been like has is this has this been a lot longer than you originally thought when you'd set out and when you did set out did you think you would succeed I think like everyone, when they start, they absolutely think that you're going to work a couple of years, become phenomenally wealthy, and then not have to work again. That's the delusional fantasy that probably most people, even if they don't admit it, probably have when they start this journey. Uh, and I think I did too. And I remember one of my um, one of my seed investors, Robin Klein, said to me, back in those days that it takes eight to 12 years to build a successful company. And I remember thinking, God, no, I hope, I hope I'm an outlier. I hope I break that tradition. Um, but I haven't. And, uh, and now that I've, I'm in the thick of it, I can see why, like, it's really hard to build a big business that can adapt, that scales, um, that takes advantage of opportunities as they come. Um, and this, I think the secret has been to find, joy and delight in every stage of the process which thankfully there has been like no six months at Skimlinks is the same and I feel constantly like I'm learning and I'm being challenged and there's a new frontier that I'm trying to overcome and that's what keeps it exciting and it still is like I still love going to work I love the people I work with um, at the moment my job has evolved and it's different to what it was even a year ago um, but yes I never thought it would be this long uh, but then I don't think it's been one job that whole time. I think that if you kind of break it down into phases or responsibilities, it's been many different journeys and phases. And is there another 10 years? Um, perhaps. Uh, I think there will be a time when I'm probably not the best person to take the company even bigger. If its destiny is to continue to grow on its own, um, then I'm probably at some stage, I may not be the right person to do that because I think I thrive more in a um, uh, earlier stage uh, company. I'm learning, uh, I'm enjoying the process of learning how to be good at this sort of scale stage in a company's life. Um, uh, so for now, I'm really happy and who knows how many more years. Can you describe Skimlinks and can you tell us what the difference between the vision you have for it is now to the vision you had for it when you set off 10 years ago? So Skimlinks uh, is a content monetization platform that helps publishers get rewarded for the role that their content plays in creating intent. Uh, so what that means is that uh, the, the concept is that when uh, you read content on publisher sites like BuzzFeed, like on Gizmodo, like on Refinery29, you're reading about products and brands and shopping and that that process of reading inspires you to buy something. And what our technology does is help capture, the, um, capture that intent um, and reward the publisher for it. On a technical level, what we do is we track the click-throughs on product links and content all the way through to conversion. We collect a commission from the retailer and we pay the publisher. So it's a way that publishers can get paid this incremental revenue stream from the products that they write about without having to show ads or do anything different. Um, so it's, uh, and again, for those who uh, are even more proficient in the worlds of digital marketing, it's a way of automating affiliate marketing on behalf of publishers so that they can make it a ubiquitous revenue stream. Um, so there's lots of different ways to talk about it depending on how technical or uh, aware you are of how digital marketing works and how different is that vision uh to what i started i think is that the vision that's a description so what's the vision what do you actually like what would be the ideal outcome where you can go you know what this is exactly as big as i ever wanted to take that yeah so when we started the vision was about automating affiliate marketing and making that process easy uh, mainstream ubiquitous and over the years what we've realized is that affiliate is only one way that you can quantify and um, and reward shopping intent and that the content to commerce journeys that people make um, can be rewarded in ways beyond affiliate and so a lot of what Skimlinks is working on now and, and what its vision is is to go beyond just affiliate and just cost per acquisition and start to find and and start to reward publishers um, in uh, in different ways for the role that their content plays in creating intent. Uh, so the ultimate vision is about creating, think of it like um, in the same way that Google monetizes um, ads in, you know, uh, text ads, we ultimately want to extract the most value in the most unannoying way from normal editorial content. 
Are you threatened by uh, the evolution of uh, what I guess we call distributed commerce? Uh, you know, the evolution of, of mobile and how fractional that's made the whole customer journey, but then also how platforms have emerged. Facebook, Instagram mm-hmm. releasing their commerce features soon. How does that really affect your business and your vision for where it goes? I mean, if, if our vision is about um, taking advantage of any, like being able to extract value from any content to commerce journey, then it encapsulates whether if that journey takes place on mobile or on social platforms. So we are busily building tools and attachments and APIs that will help monetize uh, instant articles or mobile apps or um, uh, any other number of ways that you can digest content or buy something. What is your ideal outcome for Skimlings? Would you want do you, do you seek an exit? Do you seek a trade sale of anything of the sort, or do you seek a profitable company that you can always take dividends from? Do you ever think about it in those kind of terms? I say, do you ever think about it? Obviously, every single founder ever thinks about that, so <laughs> we can remove that crap. <laughs> Obviously, a ridiculous question, but yeah. Um. And as a founder yourself, you know, that's a an awkward question to answer because you can't build a company solely for the purpose of selling it. Um, you think you do at the beginning, but actually when you're in the midst of it, you realize a company is more than a future paycheck for you. It's your team's careers. It's your customers' trust. There's all these other aspects that you value that um, – that aren't properly rewarded necessarily by aiming for an exit per se. So what your goal has to be is to build a great company and fulfill your vision. If that goal is best achieved by what, by becoming part of another company whose assets match yours and can help you better achieve that vision, help better take care of your team, help make your customers even happier – then that's a good path to pursue, but you shouldn't pursue it for the sake of it. I now have a responsibility that goes beyond myself. How easy was it early on? Um, because obviously it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. So on one side, you've, you've got the publishers and the other side, you've got the merchants. How um, how easy was it to kind of get one on? Was it, was it ever difficult? I mean, it must have been difficult. Every company, when you start, it's difficult trying to get customers. Is that trying to explain the message of what your company does? how long did that take before you really kind of saw that people kind of got what you were about? So our marketplace was made a little bit easier to build because on the merchant side, we didn't go direct to merchants. We aggregated the affiliate networks. So there's a smaller number of those. And once you did technical integrations with each of those, which to start with, we probably did 10. We're now at about 55 integrations. But to start with, we, we probably launched with about 10 uh, integrations with affiliate networks. And through them, you get access to you know thousands of, of retailers. So it was very easy to scale on the demand side. And so then we focus on having direct relationships on the supply side. Um, and that was, you know, a matter of just relentlessly going after publishers and uh, establishing a rapport, a trust, um, an excitement in what you were doing. And it's been hard because um, we don't, we pay publishers, but they, it's not the biggest paycheck that they make. And a lot of what my job has been is about, um, getting publishers to trust that it's a journey and step one looks like this, but step five is going to be this and join me on this journey and I'm not going to let you down. And that's what it's been. And now it's really exciting when for many of our publishers, we are at step five. You know, we, we work with the likes of, you know, Buzzfeed and Hearst and Condé Nast and, um, you know, pretty much any large publisher that talks about products in some way works with us. And it's so exciting that now we have learned so much about what works and the best practices that publishers who do well, this is what they do. And being able to share that and then see publishers succeed and do really well and start to make commerce a really significant part of their overall revenue mix is really exciting. Um, and you know, to finally be able to repay the trust that early customers had in me is really fulfilling. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. 
But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So as a maths geek, can we quantify some of this excitement? Can you talk to us in numbers? Give us some big numbers that are attributed to the Skimlinks team. So, um, you know, I'm not talking about revealing revenue figures or anything, but just, you know, give us some big, large numbers that if you were in an investor pitch, these are things you talk about. So we uh, work with about one and a half million websites around the world. Um and then through them, we see the content to commerce journeys of 1.6 billion people every month, which is quite a lot. Um, How many is that the percentage <laughs> of the internet? That's a fifth it's of the significant, world. actually. So that must the, be a third of the internet. Yeah. Um, it's a lot, and we. Um, we, I mean, one hundred percent of the internet minus porn. <laughs> well, these are these are devices, so you probably want to, uh, you know, if, for people that have multiple devices, you you lower it down. But it's still. Oh, we're, it sound big. We're, we're picking apart now. This is what the investors are doing. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. Um, and and then through. Uh, so through them, uh, we see the transactions uh, of about seven hundred million dollars a year. And are able to see all the journeys that preceded those transactions. Um, and what else is going to be interesting? I think that's all quite interesting. How many? How, how how many are in the company? About eighty-five. Eighty-five. Eighty-five across two offices. Correct. London, New York. Yes. Where are your offices? Uh, in London, they're uh, near here. They're um, just off Pitfield Street in Shoreditch, and in New York, they're in a WeWork in the Flatiron District. And where are you enjoying more at the moment, London or New York? You've just returned from New York, so you're yes. biased, but you're currently in London. So. <laughs> I enjoy both. I, I'm at this kind of quite fun stage uh, of of my time at Skimlinks where there's a lot of travel, which can be really exhausting, but it's also travel to fun places where I now have a lot of friends and I'm my job is to evangelize, to meet with clients, to um, – to kind of make sure that everyone in the team knows the vision and feels connected to the overall uh, culture. Uh, and that's all really fun. Can you please share with us your funding history? So the timeline, how many uh, rounds of funds you've actually raised, uh, how much in total, and do you have any further plans for fundraising? Yes, so we um, got, a well, it's been quite a lot of uh, different funding moments. So it began, let's see, I'll go through the whole thing. We had uh, a seed round at the end of 2008, but because that was taking a while to close, we got a bridging note before that. So bridging note, seed round, then we did an A round um, uh, a year later. So the seed round was about half a million pounds. The A round was uh, just over a million pounds. Then we did a... What do we do next? I think another convertible. Um, then we did a B uh, series B. Then we did a B two, and then we did a series C about a year and a half ago. And that's taken you to how much in funding in total? 
About $25 million. Okay, so 25 million US, not Australian dollars, just making sure it's real money. That's that right. is correct. Okay, good. And um, do you have any further plans for fundraising? Do you, do you think about it like that? Do you, are you at a point now where you're like, I'm still thinking about fundraising or actually I'm thinking about hopefully never fundraising again? What's in, what's in your gut? What's in your heart? We are, um, I do not want to raise again. I think now is a time for us to become uh, EBITDA positive. So that's what we're working towards. How close have you ever been, if ever close to running out of cash? Mm, thankfully, never dangerously so. Um, there's been times when um, we knew that our round was closing shortly and uh, we had to make sure it closed quickly enough. But uh, I've never missed payroll and uh, I've never really freshened about that. I think the worst it's ever been was pre-seed when I was just trying to get that first bit of cash. That was the worst because I spent a year trying to get my seed round. And this is in 2008, if you recall, which was not a good time to be raising money. Um, (laughs) So it was the the recession was hitting and it was – it was unpleasant and took a long time and I uh, was eating into my own savings. I was borrowing from friends and family. Uh, I had bank loans. I had um, uh, you know, anywhere I could find the next month's payroll. That's all I was focused on every month. The The most terrifying it ever was was when I was, um, again, pre-seed and I was just trying to make enough money to pay each month's payroll and I was uh, 500 pounds short on payroll. And I needed that because one of my employees at the time was moving out of, uh, into a new home and he needed money for his house deposit. Um, so I couldn't, not, I couldn't not pay it. And it was the lowest I've ever been. And I remember uh, I talked to a friend and she, she invested 500 pounds in the business. Uh, <laughs> she, she exited and made a very, very good return on that 500 pounds. That's, that's, that's fairly unconventional, but I guess, you know. Um, okay, so just a little insight into your fundraising strategy. So I guess slightly different for you. Um, does, everything is stressful. doesn't sound as stressful as some circumstances you hear where naturally, you know, you've got like half a million pound to pay next month and you're a week away. You hear those stories quite often. But regardless, I'm assuming as a human being, like anyone else, you get stressed. And there's lots of ups and downs in the journey. So can you share a little bit on your uh, on this section, which is body and mind, and actually give us some insights into your your mental state? Have you ever reflected into it over the last 10 years, how it's developed? How you see it? And I guess deeper, have you ever felt like you've had depression or anything like that? That's a lot of uh, lot of questions there, Jan. Technically the same question, really, just a massively long sentence. <laughs> um, I, yeah, look, I think getting your head in a good shape is uh, a prerequisite to surviving this journey because it is the most high and low and high and low. And I think the only way that you can cope is if you come to expect that volatility uh, and come to be comfortable with um, a certain degree of stress. So that just becomes the baseline as opposed to being identified as stress. Um, and you learn to find comfort and release in different ways uh, and to find uh, and to sort of provide a framework for providing a work-life balance. So I, I prefer not to work at home at night. I like to come home and that be my sanctuary where I can just uh, train myself to switch off Um I used to try not to work on weekends, although that that no longer applies. Um, but yeah, I think I, I probably suffered a lot from uh, anxiety, and I um, I don't think I've slept well in years, even now. Um, but you know, you get used to it, and so it doesn't become something that bothers you anymore. And reflecting back, do you feel like you've maybe got a better um, balance in your in your anxiety and mental state now than maybe five years ago? Because each five years, I guess you're particularly more experienced than the last definitely yeah I think five years ago um it was it was very stressful I was traveling a lot I think five yeah five years ago I was living in San Francisco setting up a U.S. office there and I was flying between San Francisco and London every month I was trying to be a remote leader which is uh, it turns out really hard um you know especially when you the kind of leader I am is a more you know in-person you know warm energetic person to to try to be that kind of leader via a crappy Skype 
voice connection is um, very damaging to relationships and to your sanity levels. So, uh, and I was traveling a lot and I'm not a great flyer. Um, I was very lonely as a result of it because when you travel a lot, people stop inviting you to things because they're not sure if you're going to be around. So that was probably the hardest time. Uh, sleep wasn't good. I was very rattled and, um, and, and the work at that time as well was really hard. I was trying to do a lot. Uh, we were going through a big transition, uh, and that was very tough. I mean, uh, I feel like in, in a luckier place now because I have, um, a superb, uh, management team, uh, my team, uh, throughout the rest of the company as well, are, are fantastic. And we've continued to hire really well. Um, my job has kind of evolved. So I, I, I now don't have to do any functional things so much anymore. And my job is to manage the executive team and set a vision and be external facing, which I find quite enjoyable. So, uh, and I've just gotten, I think, much more comfortable with stress. And I feel because I've gone through and survived so many crappy things that now I feel like no matter what comes my way, I'll be fine. I'll survive somehow. So that gives you a sense of peace. Valid. And um, I guess just listening to your story about flying back and forth from San Francisco and, and knowing what I feel like when I do lots of journeys and your fitness regime can get so disrupted. Um, have you ever had problems staying in shape? And for anyone that can't actually see because they're listening, Alicia is a beautiful, slender <laughs> lady and looks like she's never put on an ounce of fat in her life. But just out of curiosity, do you work hard to stay in shape? And have you had problems with that along the way? Uh, I think I've, I, I'm, I guess I'm quite lucky in that I, um, I've never really fluctuated that much in size. I've obviously been a little bit bigger um, at times, but not to the point where I've ever felt unhappy with my body. I've, I'm, I like who I am. Um, uh, but yes, I, tr- I, tr- I try to exercise and stay fit. I think my saving grace is I don't like sweet things. So uh, have eliminating an entire food group of anything that contains sugar in it probably helps, but I make up for it by eating a lot of fries and cheese and pasta. Uh, <laughs> and the times I do that too much, then I, I, I have to kind of then pull back afterwards. But yes, I, I, so what do you do to stay in shape? What's your, what's your thing? Is it yoga, Pilates, running? I actually have come across the best combination at the moment that is working for me better than anything I've ever done. And it is basically walking to work. <laughs> so I now live about 17 minutes from my office and I walk to work rapidly and briskly. And uh, I do uh, about 30 minutes of yoga on my living room floor um, a couple of times a week. And I do this thing called a seven-minute app, which does this kind of high-intensity uh, weights and squats and lunges and so on. And I do that many mornings. And that has been the most effective exercise for me, more than going to the gym, more than anything else. It's very easy. What do you eat for breakfast? I'm obsessed with eggs. Okay. And it's got any, well, all types. Oh, yeah. Uh, usually scrambled. I feel like eggs are almost always the answer to almost any question. Mm. Uh, yes, in various forms. Omelette, uh, um, scrambled. I make this awesome egg souffle in the microwave, which is the quickest and easiest thing. It's so cool. You get this little microwave dish. You crack two eggs in it. You put some hot sauce, some salt and pepper. Um, put in the microwave for a minute and a half. While you're doing that, you get a rice cake. Sometimes you put a little bit of cream cheese on the rice cake, but you don't have to. Then you take it out. Plump, plump it on the rice cake, and that's my breakfast. For any of our budding entrepreneurs listening, that would be described as breakfast, lunch, and dinner in your first year. So it's actually a useful, a useful hack that one. Olivia's cookbook will be available all good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so on the yoga note, are you spiritual? Um, I think probably less than people that actively define themselves as spiritual. Religious? No. Um, scientific obviously scientific but I, I i do believe in a um a power of a human spirit i don't know what that is i'm probably agnostic in that sense i'm not 100 percent sure that there's nothing but i think that probably most of the world's religions are not right sorry don't kill me um but yeah i think i i i i don't think i'm as spiritual as a lot of more spiritual types people say entrepreneurs are crazy are you crazy i think i'm occasionally delusional 
Okay, blissfully delusional. So, I mean, can you share a story of a time you were crazy and or just delusional? I think you have to be to a degree to 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 do some things because some of the greatest innovations came about when no one else was doing something, but you were utterly convinced that you were going to be right. Um, you have to believe you're invincible. You have to believe you're destined for greatness. There's this, you have to believe that you're a god in some way because it's the only it's a mythology that helps you survive. And and I my job is often to create that um, uh, what's that thing called that that Steve Jobs had the reality distortion effect. So yeah, I think I, I I'm told that I do that too, and uh, I think I kind of know I'm doing that sometimes. But I think that that's an effective way to create cohesion and unity and passion in the people around you. Fair. That actually leads us nicely on to our last section, which is around lessons and failures. So what pisses you off? About other entrepreneurs? Yes. I get pissed off when I meet, and I put in inverted commas, entrepreneurs, who think that all it takes is a bit of hard work and a good idea because that's the easy bit. Why hard- does that piss you off? Because they're destined to fail, and I, and I, and I know that sounds awful, but it's – absolutely true like it takes the really great entrepreneurs when you meet them you see that there's something else there and uh i I think so i think there's a big debate about whether it's an eight or whether you could be taught it i think it has to be an eight i think that there's something in the eyes and in the character and in the magic that surrounds people that are, are, are destined to be good entrepreneurs because it's not just the idea and it's not just working hard. It's somehow being able to um, convince people over a long period of time to follow your vision, even though they get paid poorly and it's stressful and it's probably not going to work. And that that's the hard bit. Do you think that a lot of it comes down to confidence? I think it's not just confidence. Uh, I think it's partly that, partly that delusional aspect that I mentioned earlier. I think you need to kind of believe that you're destined for this which is completely arrogant, but also a necessary self-belief. And I think that um, it's also a, uh, a type of charm. I think it has to be. What mistakes do you actually see other people doing that wind you up then? Um, I, that's a good question. I, um, I get pissed off when I guess I see entrepreneurs that think that they it will be easy to raise money and that actually uh, isn't it terrible that investors aren't giving them a chance and i and the, what pisses me off is that they don't realize that investors are not there to be like an x-factor judge that maybe if you try hard enough they'll see something in you it's an investor is looking at investing other people's money and uh, trying to make a certain amount of return in a certain time so you have to prove that you are an investable asset and that you have the ability to um, execute over a long period of time, over insurmountable and persistent challenges and deliver a return compared to everything else that's in the market. And if you can't do that, you are not going to be a good entrepreneur. Okay, so some mistakes there. What's the biggest mistake that you've made in business? I think I think one of the things that uh, uh, I've learned over the years is that uh, title creep is um, ultimately very dangerous. Uh, it's can Take be- us through that. What's title creep? This is interesting. Giving the first, per, you know, the first engineer that you hire the title of CTO is is not going to be a good thing. You're either absolutely going to fire them at some stage, um, or you're going to have to break their heart and demote their title and bring in someone above them. And I've had to do both of those things, and neither of them are pleasant. So, what happens if you have a developer and he says, "I'd like to be called lead developer," and there's only him, or like, there's two of them? What what would you what's your response to that? It depends how good they are and how much you care about having them around. I think I really do believe now that title creep is a very dangerous thing, and you should never give a title unless you're convinced that that's going to be a worthwhile title for a period of time. I, I, I'm I'm still even learning that today is we're bringing in kind of um, we're bringing in more levels in the engineering team because I think engineers often have the challenge of there not being as many levels of promotion that you can achieve within a bigger engineering team so we've actually brought some in so that there's a sense of progression and achievement within the engineering team what's your biggest personality flaw um i'm very tenacious and i don't like to 
be wrong. Okay. Sound like a lot of other people that I know. So fair enough. Probably in quite good company a lot of the time. Um, Can you please tell us what the best piece of advice you've been given is? I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, which I now repeat a lot to young entrepreneurs that tell me how they're really trying to get a really good valuation right now and how they're going to go for that investor versus another one because of valuation. And the advice I give them, which is what I was given back then, is valuation doesn't matter. It's the terms that matter. And it's the fact that you're here tomorrow that matters. And getting a really great valuation, but that means you can't raise again on an up round. And that means you probably go under. That's bad. Um, a great valuation, but with terms that take away your control of the board or that make it very difficult to achieve an exit or another up round, that's bad. The most important thing are the terms and the investors that you choose and the fact that you're doing whatever it takes to still be here tomorrow. What other advice would you give? I mean, this is a, a tricky one because you've just shared lots of, nuggets <laughs> of great advice, but you know, you seem like a fountain of knowledge for everyone. So one last piece of advice to young entrepreneurs that are just starting off today. Well, I'll answer that with what I tell my team and my executive team when things are tough, which is the best way to get through this is to imagine that this is just a game and we're just really good at this game and I hope that we win. But if we don't, it would have been fun anyway. So it's a mindset thing. It is a mindset thing. It's a way to kind of, no matter what happens, like sometimes real, you know what it's like when really bad things happen and they're going, fuck, how am I going to deal with this? And I've just trained my team to sit there and giggle when that happens. And we just sit there and giggle and go, right, let's see how we're going to deal with this one. Isn't this hilarious? This is hitting us again. Oh, it's a game. Like we'll get through this. And, And that becomes the way that we react. And I've trained everyone to do that. And it just makes the journey worthwhile. Are you a feminist? And what does that mean to you, if I ask you that question? Because you, you, you've you got a big smile across your face like it's a complicated question to you. So what does that mean, that question to you? It is a very complicated question to answer because I think feminism means different things to different people. I don't like where some aspects of some aspects of modern feminism are going. I think that they're damaging to women. And uh, and I'm not a, I, I definitely do not subscribe to um, this uh, to any kind of feminism that um, uh, assumes that men are by their nature rapists or assumes that men are you know uh, evil and and um, and deliberately trying to bring down women. Uh, I don't believe that the reason that there aren't more women in tech is due to anything other than not that many women necessarily want to be in it. Nothing has ever stopped me getting anything I've wanted in uh, technology or anywhere else, but especially in technology where it's, to my mind, a complete meritocracy. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not a fan of a lot of aspects of modern feminism that take the perspective that someone's out to get them and that they're a victim. I, I don't, I'm not a victim and I have no respect for people that treat life as if they are. So from a mathematical point of view, your, uh, your perspective on the difference between men in tech and women in tech is purely based on choice and just what you know, men and women gravitate towards as professional choices and nothing more. I believe that if being a woman is the hardest thing you have to deal with in life, you're fucking lucky. If you could start all over again, would you rather sustainable, profitable business in year one or high growth tech startup all over again? Oh, um, I think it would be fun. Oh, I don't know, actually. I think the next business would be um, uh, probably a fast growth one. I, I think I, I love the idea of building things and seeing them explode. Would it be a business in e-commerce and content or something else completely? I have ideas in both. So uh, it depends what takes my fancy at the time, I guess. Here's a tricky one for you. Would you rather raise money from investors you don't get on with at all or fail? Uh, oh, definitely raise money from investors I don't get along with. I, I have in the past not gotten on with some of my investors and I've still made it work. Uh, would you start again with the same co-founder, a different co-founder or no co-founder? Um, I would be delighted to do it again with my current co-founder. And there's other people I'm working with now that I would love to start a business with as well. Um, I don't want to do it alone. <laughs> Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. 
There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Well, the good news is by the end of the interview, I finally got her name right. So I think if anything, um, 10 points to me for lessons learned and God loves a trier and all that kind of stuff. So um, not sure how you got it right the first time, Rich, obviously a more astute listener than I am. It's called research. Um, and it's called friendship, I suppose, as well. Um, really, I don't have any notable excuse. So moving swiftly on, um, I think let's talk about the credits and merits of that interview. Um, just an energetic and awesome person with an awesome joy de vivre, happiness flowing through all her veins and uh, her spirit and attitude towards what she's building and how much she loves the sort of brand and the family feel and the culture. Um, definitely things to learn from. You know, she's a total inspiration in every way. Next week, very different kind of guy, very different kind of lesson, very different kind of attitudes. We have an absolute titan of industry, Sir John Hegarty, who, for those that don't know, is one of the most influential and successful people ever in the history of advertising as the co-founder of the prolifically famous BBH, who are one of the most decorated and awarded advertising creative agencies in the world um, with a huge variety and array of successes. Not only can Lions and blah, 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 and multi-million dollar contracts from some of the biggest companies and most famous campaigns you've ever seen, but also seven number one hits from the charts for campaigns that they've actually run on behalf of clients. So an unbelievably interesting interview from um, our first sir, in the uh, in in this history, short history of a secret lives of leaders, but hopefully not the last. Looking forward to Sir Elton John another time. But until then, Rich, can you please tell our listeners where they can find us if they want to tune in for next week's episode? Yes. Yeah, so as always, you can find us on uh, iTunes podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, and on SoundCloud. Just search for Secret Leaders or Secret Lives of Leaders in any of those. Uh, and if you want to download or just listen to the podcast, the whole history of them, uh, they are all on our website, which is secretleaders.com. Uh, if you want to get in touch, send us any ideas, any feedback, then you can do that by emailing us at hello at secretleaders.com. So stay tuned and we look forward to seeing you next week. Hello.